and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin joins me today. He was out at the races. Devin, you drove a car. Tell me about it. <laughs> oh, it's one of those experiences where they let you uh, behind the wheel of a uh, a tuned down indie car, and you get to drive that around the track. And uh, I was lucky enough to be able to get up to a speed of 158.5 miles per hour around the oval track, which was uh, a lot of fun and a lot of adrenaline. Holy cow. They let you drive that? Is there some kind of waiver in case you, you know, die or something? Oh, oh, there is. There is pages and pages of waivers um, of all kinds of things that uh, could go wrong. The lucky part is, though, they, they don't they locked it all into one gear. They, they don't want people to try to shift gears in that car. So they literally started by push starting the car. You pop the clutch and then you just sit in one gear and you ride that one gear all the way up to 150 miles an hour. Uh, because I'm pretty sure everyone would burn out the clutch trying to shift an indie car for the first time. How the hell does one gear go up to 150 miles an hour? That seems... Um, I, I'm guessing it's the gear in the middle of the range. I mean, usually those cars are like six gears or so. So I'm guessing they just took third gear, and the engine has enough horsepower and torque that it can kind of, if you're rolling at 15 miles an hour, it won't stall the engine. Um, and then it takes you quite a while to get it all the way up there. And I could feel it w- when I was going slower and I put the throttle down. Uh, it's just like if you're in fifth gear in your car and you try to accelerate, it just goes because it, um, it's not in the right gear for it. But the whole thing is to be at the top speed. So eventually you, after a lap, you get up to the top speed and you're in the corners and you're feeling like one G, maybe it was a little bit over a G, like trying to pull you out of the seat. But uh, a lot of fun. On my side, nothing exciting has been happening other than uh, (laughs) unpacking more and more boxes. I've got my farm of rendering computers down below my desk right now. And actually, I'm going to show you the secret. Hey, look, I'm wearing shorts. Uh, There's like uh, one, two, three, four computers underneath of my desk right now. What a mess. That you're bumping your knees into. Yeah. Bumping your knees into and turning off by accident. I know, right? (laughs) Um, So if you're wondering why I have all those, uh, if you look into your uh, Adobe manual, you'll find that you can set up nodes and render stuff out really fast if you have multiple CPUs running at the same time. So just some kind of cool little trick when I'm trying to render out stuff really fast, it can assign little bits of the project to each of those computers and go on a network. So I've also got my switch over here uh, somewhere right here. (laughs) <laughs> there it is. Ooh, yeah, the Yeah, so nothing really exciting, but it's also it's warm outside and now I'm sitting in front of three computer four computers, so it's even warmer in here. Uh otherwise nice nothing too exciting to report. I think it might be time for us to quit stalling and move on <laughs> to the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. And actually, I say time for the news, but then I want to show you a show-and-tell project that I'm still continuing to work on. I talked about this last episode with Mitch, and now I'm going to show it to Devin because it's kind of sweet. I've got this guy right behind me here, and I'm going to grab it now. I've been waiting bated breath. This sounds this sexy. This is uh, my current editing build, and I'm trying to build something really small here. And this is a mini ITX board, full Pentium, or excuse me, i7-4770K, I believe, in here. Uh, two SSDs, one terabyte each. I've got uh, a GTX 970 that was going in here, but uh, the Asus GTX 970 that first came in uh, was dead on arrival. So that's being armed right now. Oh. Once that's in, this little box right here, super tiny, super efficient. For the for the poor listeners, he his computer case is probably a little bit bigger than one foot by one foot. Um, it's it's small enough he could hide it under his shirt if he had to. Okay, so. Here is a Canon 6D with a 51.2 on it and the lens hood. And it is just about the height of this system. That's how freaking small this is. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think, uh, 12 or 11 inches. So, yeah, just about a foot. You're right. Um, it, What's the cause for the recent fascination with tiny editing computers? I Okay, so um, <laughs> I, I have my laptop, uh, which is, again, mm-hmm. being armed. Thanks for that. The GTX, uh, G, GX, G, whatever. My freaking laptop mm-hmm. is to you again. Uh, it's being sent back in. The uh, motherboard failed yet again. So I was oh. like, well, this is a good excuse to try and experiment with like building a really tiny, high powered system. And the GTX 970 is no slouch for editing. And this form factor is something that I could, you know, 
maybe attach a handle to and drag with me somewhere or throw in my luggage or whatever and then use whatever monitors available when I get there. So really interesting uh, price-wise. I'm looking at, I think the total budget's going to be a little bit under $800 by the time I'm done building this. So not really expensive, but a lot of horsepower Very under the powerful. hood in a really tiny form factor. Now, on the side note here, I was able to tack some of the cost of this machine onto a couple of projects that I'm working on. So that's part of why <laughs> I'm, uh, you know, wasting money on another machine is because I, <laughs> I can. But uh, still. Right after he says, I've got four computers underneath me right now, he pulls out the fifth one from behind him. But I just made this one. It's really cool. Check it out. Well, in my defense, <laughs> um, I keep most of my older systems. So there's a... Uh, i7 920 underneath of me as well as an 81 AMD 8150 system underneath of me and then an i7 830 I think uh, so they're fairly dated systems but uh, mm-hmm. they're still quad core they're still hyper thread so they do actually render projects pretty well and each one of is those systems reason... oh go ahead is there a reason why you went with that case instead of the uh, NK M1 prototype uh, this is so freaking small and it was only 40 bucks <laughs> Uh, that's because I do think the end case is like a hundred bucks. It was a Kickstarter that they had. A buddy of mine actually bought one. Um, now you're talking about the one with the, the like built in cooling system where it was like aluminum and like machine to fit the motherboard and stuff like that. Uh, I think that's the one I'm talking about. It's the one that'll fit a full size, uh, graphics card full size and fit a like 240 millimeter radiator to cool both the graphics card and the CPU. Yeah, I remember um, seeing that. I, I thought that was like 250 or 300 by the time they uh, got it could to market. Be. After the Kickstarter, you're absolutely right. They, it could be expensive, which you talking about saving money, that 50 bucks, I'm surprised a case like that's 50 bucks, but I guess it being smaller, it's less resources. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to experiment with this one and then to be truthful here, I'm going to move the mic so you can see this. There's a wooden computer back there. See that old one up on top? <laughs> That used to be my case for my HTPC, and uh, once I get all the experimenting done with this, use it for the projects that I have intended for, I'm going to probably install it next to my television in the living room and use it for Steam games. So, you know. yeah. (laughs) Because, I mean, imagine like a super cute little tiny machine that fits on a single shelf space, and you can just run a couple of wires to the back of your system, and you're good to go. My wife's happy about that. So, you know, now (laughs) that I'm moving. Yeah, exactly. Uh, The other thing that's really nice now is with the GTX 970, you can get the cards down into a really small range. Uh, So the card is designed specifically for mini ITX boards. It's only six inches long, as opposed to like 11 or 12 with like my uh, R9 290X or my Titan. So. So, you know, it's it's pretty good. I'm I'm satisfied with how it's going to turn out. Um, just wish my uh, graphics card wasn't to you when it showed up, but that's my fault. I ordered an Amazon warehouse deal, and um, I'm wow. going to give you guys a warning right now. Uh, Amazon warehouse deal is great if you're buying like a chair, you know, um, a piece <laughs> of clothing or something like that. But when it comes to computer parts, I have had nothing but problems with the warehouse deals. Uh, things are either not working, they're burning up when they get there, they have like cracked screens, all kinds of weird stuff. So I don't know what Amazon does to check over products they when probably they probably don't. They probably don't. They yeah, probably they... just look over for physical damage and then repackage it and ship it. But most of the reason why electronics get returned is because they break. Well, and I've even and... gotten sets of RAM where I ordered. Uh, four dim slots and i i got two so i was supposed to get 32 gigs of ram and i got 16 and they're like uh, why are you returning this i'm like what you know there's there's four there's supposed to be four in here and i got two what the hell is wrong with you you know and uh, <laughs> no one opens the box up to look to find out that you know two of them are missing and i almost wonder if there's some kind of scam where people are going and ordering from amazon taking two of the items and then sending two of them back and they just give them credit mm. for it and you know I don't know the secret ins and outs, but uh, maybe if they don't have computer savvy people, some of those things slide. And then whoever did that ends up with a couple sticks of RAM and saves like a hundred bucks or something. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, on that note, let's move on to something a little more interesting here. I've got the Panasonic GX8 uh, up on the news list here, and that's pretty sexy. Um, are you familiar with the GX7? I am. I was able to shoot with one once, and I did like the size and uh, the weight of it, but I haven't used one extensively. Are you a big fan of the GX? Um, I've messed around with it, basically just played around with them in the stores, but 
the GX7 is in a price range of like $350 to $400. It's like a mid-range point and shoot. I think the 7 had that weird like 24 to 90 millimeter focal range, and it was like an mm-hmm. F1.7 wide open all the way up to like a F2.3 or F2.4, something strange like that. Well, it sounds like uh, next week Panasonic will be announcing the GX8, which is the pre- or predecessor to this, and this will or predecessor predecessors before. That's not the right <laughs> no. word. Uh, you know, it comes after. So the successor, the successor? to Thank the GX7. Go, there we go. I can use the English language. Uh, man, I'm just <laughs> flailing today. Anyway, it looks like they're going to include the same lens that's on the LX100, which is a 24-70 to F1.7 to F2.8. And, of course, key feature 4K is going to be added to this. It'll be a cute, nice little point-and-shoot camera. And this could kind of go toe-to-toe with uh, Sony's one-inch, 20-megapixel RX10 Mark IV, is it? Mark V? Whichever version of the RX has the 24 to 70. I'm There's so many mm-hmm. numbers floating around in my head between the 100, <laughs> the 10, and so on that I'm getting them all mixed together. But I expect to see this in a price range of under $500. So that's a, a full-fledged point-and-shoot camera plus video, 4K mm-hmm. features, and you're looking at something in the price of a, a GoPro. What do you think about that, Devin? Is that compelling? That is compelling, especially because of the lens that um, is possible to put on it. 20, uh, 24 to 70 is a little long, I think, for a micro four thirds, but the fact that you're getting f1.7 to 2.8, I think, is really strong compared to um, a lot of the stuff you pick up when you're trying to use a Panasonic camera. Well, I think, um, now correct me if I'm wrong, but the RX, uh, I think it's the RX10 marked. Mark IV. Uh, it might be the mm-hmm. RX100. But anyway, I think that's a F2.8 constant across its uh, zoom range, not F1.7 to F2.8. So it might have a little bit of, could a, be right. of a heads up on that. I might be getting that confused, though, because the other focal range, I think, on the RX100 is 24 to 200 at F2.8 constant. So maybe I'm wrong. I Actually, you know what? Mm-hmm. I think I am wrong. But uh, anyway, the, the point is here that... Uh, it, it is compelling. Especially, we're going to talk about GoPro in a bit here, but um, seeing that um, we're still waiting for GoPro to kind of come out with uh, their next revision of their camera and where that's going to go as they're looking at building their own uh, sensors now or use their own sensor technology as opposed to buying others. Uh, But these point-and-shoots are becoming so cheap, and the quality of them and the 4K and everything else with the lenses and everything else is becoming so ideal. It's kind of like I feel like GoPro is going to have a hard time – staying in the market if their cameras keep being priced way up where point and shoots are at and all it takes is somebody like panasonic to make a point and shoot that's mostly waterproof like they have in the past and have decent specs on it yeah and people are going to start considering that over gopro people who shoot i mean gopro is established as a brand that'll never go away but people might start considering ah maybe i'll just get this point and shoot because it takes like 24 megapixel stills and it's got 4k video and image stabilization and hey it looks great so now, speaking of GoPro, we might as well roll right into that article, and I'm going <laughs> to go ahead and scroll down a little ways in the news. Uh, the GoPro session, uh, I think I said season last time I was talking about that. It's not season, it's session. <laughs> Definitely session. I can totally read. Uh, anyway, so the, small, so the Hero 4 session is basically a tiny version of the GoPro uh for Silver Edition, I believe. So let me bring this up so everybody Roughly. can see this. Uh, for those of you not watching the video and just listening, uh, it's basically this tiny little square. Internal battery is included, so you cannot change the battery. Uh, it's waterproof one as opposed to needing a housing. Uh, otherwise, it shoots uh, 1080p as well as 2.5K, which was a feature of the Hero 3 Black Edition. Um, otherwise, nothing really exciting to report here. Uh, slightly longer battery life. They're claiming two hours, so probably expect an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, Devin, do you see anything I'm missing that makes this an amazing buy at, f- what, 399 For me, the price doesn't make any sense. Um I think maybe they're trying not to cannibalize sales from their uh, lower range cameras. They're silver. Do they do a white four as well? Do they still do the white, silver, and black? Okay, so I'm not 100% on the color scheme, but the lowest price unit uh, shoots 1080p and it's like 147 or $150. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they have the old, like traditional, like GoPro. Blank yeah. or and, whatever, which and is they, even they have like, the middle line that has the built-in screen on the back. 
and that one's like two ninety nine. So three ninety nine. Where does this sit? I mean, is there? Would you run out and buy this because it doesn't seem like it's a step forward if, to me? If it's your, if it's gonna be your first, then there might be some reason to get it. I do like that the size is small. Um, that's always been a little bit of a complaint of mine is that the way that they build the camera, because uh, it's pretty clearly like they're putting a sensor and a lens on a board and then behind that board attaching a battery and that's or a screen and that's how they run things um and so i've always wanted them to get smaller something that makes sense if you put it next to the helmet or something like that i feel like smaller is their demo because that's what gopro is supposed to be known for is getting it into tight places you don't normally throw other cameras and it being a bit rugged um i really appreciate the added battery life for being the smaller size uh but I've seen some of uh, these videos with some sharpness tests like you have, and it's pretty clear that the Hero 4 Silver is got higher quality to it. Now, I kind of feel like partially that it's not just a sharpness problem. Uh, it's also the bit rate, I think, is a lot lower on the uh, the session than it is on the Silver. So it's one of those that I guess if you want the best quality, there are better cameras to get for that price point because even the Silver will get you a better, I think, too, a better experience overall. Because being able to have that screen on the back, if it's your only GoPro and you're one of these people who just take it out as like, I'm hanging out with my friends, I'm going to bring a GoPro, we're going to the beach, I'm bringing my GoPro, having that screen on the back makes it much more fun to use because you can start to put it in narrow mode or medium mode and see what you're shooting. Otherwise, if you're shooting blind, you always go wide because you just want to make sure you don't miss anything because you're shooting blind. So I kind of like the size and I understand using the phone as a control surface probably helps to increase the battery life, but it's just one of those that not one thing about this is compelling besides the fact that it's, I don't know, built-in waterproof and its size. And for the price, it just doesn't feel like that size and step back in quality is worth it. I'm guessing this is a stepping stone until they start coming out with uh, the 5 Series. Now, I'm going through and looking at the prices here because uh, I was getting confused. I knew there was one that didn't have a color on it, and that is the cheap one. So the GoPro, just plain old yeah. Hero, that's the one for $129. And uh, that one doesn't have the Mac screen, but uh, it is compatible with a phone app. Looks like you can plug it in uh, to a USB mm -hmm. adapter. I'm looking, the Silver is the one with the built-in screen on the back, and it's priced exactly the same as the uh, the Session, so they it's three ninety nine. And they do make uh, the, the Hero, I guess that's what it's called, it's just called the Hero. They do make a Hero with a built-in LCD screen, but that jumps the price up from 130 to 300 Oh, wow. Which is a little bit of a pricey jump for a camera that's uh, quality doesn't increase as well. Well, that's kind of strange because you can buy the backplate for the Hero, and I've got one actually right here, the backpack. I don't think you can attach it to the – I don't think you can attach that to the Hero. I think if you look at the back – Oh, is it missing um, the adapter rail to like – Yeah, it's missing the hooks, and it's missing the little board that's supposed to – like it has something there, but it's clearly not the same size. So it looks like an expansion port, but not for any of your old accessories. Yeah, so I'm looking at it right now, and Devin's absolutely right. Let me share this with you guys. On the back of the Hero is an SD card slot as well as a USB port, but it is missing that accessory shoe that you need for the screen. Now, you could go... Let me see what the Hero 3 is, actually. The Hero 3 is still for sale, and it looks like you can buy the Hero 3 Plus Black Edition in, what, uh, $299, $300, basically? Yeah. So, you know, you'd almost be better off going with the older Hero 3 getting the backpack and you would have mm -hmm. a little bit more versatile tool for, you know, about $100 less than you would spend on the uh, session or season. No, oh, man, I did it again. Uh, <laughs> let, me, let me correct myself real quick, too. If you do get the Hero Plus uh, LCD as okay. opposed to just the Hero that doesn't have a Plus, um, it does up to the 1080p recording from 30 to 60 frames per second. So you do get slightly more features if you go for the Hero Plus LCD as opposed to just the Hero, I guess, which justifies that price bump a little bit more. But for 300 bucks, you could get a Hero 4 Black, which I'm pretty sure would blow the Hero Plus out of the water because I'm pretty sure the Hero Plus probably uses plastic lenses like all their old cameras have been. Yeah, you know, as much as I rant about... Uh, 
GoPros in general, like I still, I have what, two or three of these on my desk right now and I use them all the time. So they're not bad tools. I love them to death. Um, I use them all the time. It's just frustrating to me that they're not keeping up with uh, a lot of the other stuff that's out there. And this is not keeping up. You know, the this new addition to their lineup is just something smaller and at the same price. It, now that we're starting to see what, 960 frames per second out of uh, Sony's new lineup of cameras, and mm -hmm. even their point-and-shoots are sitting in the $700 range, you're almost, I mean, I know it's not an action camera, but a lot of people who buy these for action camera um, purposes, they use them once or twice, like you said, to go out to the beach. Maybe they dip it in water, they're really excited, they do that one shot of their kids swimming or whatever, and then after that, what do they use it for? Well, they use it to, like, film little bits where they're, you know, filming themselves or, like, they're in their yard or whatever else. You don't necessarily need something that's extreme, waterproof, and, you know, tactically able to get thrown on the ground a bunch of times in order to accomplish that sort of thing. And I think in the long term, uh, many people would be better served with uh, that sort of device, you know, an actual camera as opposed to a gopro i maybe i'm wrong overall, overall i think that the session is really targeted towards um people who do videos on their motorcycle they do sports videos they're shooting themselves whether they're bmxing through the forest or something like that that's always a common one or surfing um i feel like if it's just that's the one camera you buy and you want to go record yourself doing stuff um that the session just because of its size and battery life and everything else probably makes a little bit more sense for anyone who's shooting video for clients or for production or something like that is going to appreciate a lot more being able to swap out batteries, being able to put in different, uh, you know, cases or whatever, and like being compatible with, you know, LCD backpacks to line up the shop before you put on a battery backpack for storage capacity. Or like I said, the, uh, I think they're 35 bucks. Those extended batteries where it's a battery pack and a backpack all mixed into one. Those things lasted me forever on my GoPro uh, black. So those are, those would all better serve somebody who goes out and shoots and has productions and is doing multi-camera stuff. As opposed to if you're just a person who goes snowboarding or something like that and wants to record it, yeah, then I could see a session being useful for someone like that because they're going to attach it to one spot, record some video and call it a day. Now, one other thing that's noted on uh, the Hero session is that it it's good for three or thirty three feet below. Uh, so, are the other units in the case rated for that depth? And maybe that would be the reason is maybe scuba diving or some sort of like extreme underwater type of stuff. Because thirty three feet that does seem like a a fairly significant a significant depth to go with a uh, a Hero Four. Uh, I don't know if the plastic case is rated for that. I depth wanted or not. to say the plastic cases were rated for that i'm not totally sure but i feel like yes that is what they're supposed to be rated for um ooh, a leg mount i haven't seen that one before there's a leg mount what they're are you coming out with new mounts uh, <laughs> uh anyway the the nice thing about having any gopro is that you can fit into small places and you can go underwater so if you have underwater stuff to do it's not a bad idea um honestly unless you really need the size you might be better served with one of their other offerings. Uh, the size is really the only thing that seems compelling to this. Uh, otherwise, not so much for me. If someone comes up with a reason, or you guys think of something that's really uh, interesting about this that I've missed or Devin's missed, uh, send us an email, let us know, or send me uh, a Twitter message or whatever. I I'd like to hear it, uh, kind of find out more about what people are using these for. Uh, there is a question in the chat room here someone was asking about this behind me here this is my uh canon eos m and he was asking if i still use this actually i use it all the time um i was looking for a camera that i could keep on here for a little while while i'm still dealing with trying to balance this uh tv cam unit here so that is what i'm using it for right now i've got the 22 millimeter uh, f2 lens on there and it is great for that sort of thing this is a very light compact camera and with magic lantern running on it you can do quite a bit uh, for those of you listening i was basically just touching the eos m in the background um moving on down the <laughs> line in the show notes here let's take a look at this really affordable aoc 4k panel this guy is 349. This is probably the first in this range. Uh, in the past, we've seen 4K panels from Samsung as well as Asus, and those panels were roughly $600, $550, something in that range. Uh, this one looks like they're doing the same thing as they did with those early 2560 by 1440 panels where they actually 
got panel stock that wasn't making the grade for Samsung or you know Apple or whoever and are releasing this in kind of a chintzy little case at 349 for a 4K 28-inch TN panel. That seems like a pretty good deal. Devin, what do you think about this guy? Um, I think that it, it, it forces people who are looking at monitors right now to ask uh, which they'd rather prefer, 4K or IPS. Um, because for the same price, that's what I bought my 4K or my IPS 1440p monitor for. Uh, Monoprice usually sells them around this price. There's a lot of other Chinese manufacturers on eBay who do the same price. And it, it's one of those that's convincing because I feel for myself – I would have probably gone with the 4K six months ago when I bought this monitor if it was between 4K TN or 1440p IPS. As much as I love the IPS, um, besides like an output monitor for color correcting and stuff like that, I could probably get much more use out of 4K in terms of resolution and room on my timeline and room to stretch and have icons and all kinds of fun bits uh, as opposed to um, going with the IPS display. So... I'd probably I'd probably go with the 4K if I had to go back and make a choice rather than an IPS, but it's very compelling. It almost makes me want to switch over to like a, a two uh, 24 um, uh, or two 28 inch monitors editing workflow instead of what I've got right now three monitors. You have okay three monitors. Now I got a I got a question for you because I've tried doing yeah. two monitors and it, it's really irritating me. How do you feel about the bezel? Does the bezel bother you? Um, you know, it's funny. I, I don't edit through the bezel. I know a lot of people stretch their timeline across the bezel and then the bezel's kind of in the way. Um, the, uh, the best I could do, I guess I can, I can just show you here if I've got enough cord. Uh, but generally speaking, um, so over here is, uh, everything's backwards to me. So you'll have to give me a second here. Uh, so my right monitor here will be an output monitor. Okay. And then I'll have like the center monitor where I hang out with DJ. And this is where my timeline is, which is a 28 inch 1440p. And on the left, I've gone vertical and that's usually got a list of footage. So because it's vertical, it makes more sense to have a bazillion icons and scroll down. My eye can read a few icons per row faster than it could read several icons for a few, you know, columns or whatever. So all that combined, my workflow actually works a lot better uh, going with three monitors. So that's kind of why I'm in that workflow with two 1080p's and then a big monitor in the middle that's 1440p. So, and that's why two 4K would make more sense for me. But generally, uh, yeah, I, I never stretch my timeline over. The monitor on the right is an output monitor, and that's what I'm using for color correcting. Uh, it's a big preview, so I can see every pixel and make sure I'm not losing anything. So as opposed to you, it sounds like you probably scrunch your timeline across all your monitors uh, when you work. I only have one monitor. I hate bezels. I oh, okay. cannot stand them. Oh, so really? okay. right now in front of me, I have the Samsung, uh, shoot, it's the U5, I just wrote it down, U28D590. That is a, I think I paid mm -hmm. 550 bucks for it. It's a 4K panel. It was one of the first ones to hit the market that was 60 hertz. Um, it, 28 inches is too small for me, honestly. Like, I use yeah. this panel all the time. I like the space. Uh, you know, realistically, editing, having a 4K panel means that you can put a full 1080p window up in the corner for your preview window. You can see mm -hmm. clips in basically uh, full size without having to scale them down. And, of course, your timeline and your clip pane are big enough to where you can kind of see pretty much everything you need in order to get going. But at 28 inches, <laughs> the text right. on the screen in Premiere and it's After tiny. Effects does not necessarily abide by the rules that you get when you set your uh, your text re or text size in Windows. Your so, DPI settings inside the operating system. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So Maybe I'm just like... Maybe it's me having old eyes, but um, while, well, yeah, I could have a workflow with one monitor and 1080p in the corner. Uh, having a bigger monitor that's at least 24 inches, that's 1080p, I know I'm not going to miss any pixels. All the pixels are big enough that I'll be able to account for all of them to make sure there's no dead pixels in the footage or anything like that or any glitchiness going on. And um, so then that alleviates a whole section of uh, my workflow. So usually I'll have a timeline across the bottom, and then, uh, and I'll have it pretty tall too, because I don't really have any video frames. Usually my source window is on the other monitor too. But then across the top, I'll have like effects, I'll have color correction curves and stuff like that. So it, it's like if I take that and put that off to another monitor, um, then it frees up space on my current monitor. And I'm not necessarily working through a bezel. 
I'm doing a bunch of stuff on one monitor and noticing how it changes on another monitor. So they do make really thin bezels, though, DJ. They, they make some really thin stuff now. You know, we're talking like maybe half a centimeter of bezel. My dream monitor right now, and I'll bring this up so you guys can see it, uh, is the Seiki SM40 UNP. That's a 40-inch 4K panel. And, uh, I mean, maybe it's not my dream monitor. I kind of actually also have been <laughs> jonesing for one of those wraparounds. Uh, the curved, oh, the uh, curves, the ultra wide. Yeah. 380 by uh 2000, I think is, uh, or 1440 mm-hmm. by 30, 38, whatever. You know what I mean? The big 32 yeah. inch curve panels. They're super wide. Yeah. They're yeah. super wide. They're These curved around. Nice. Those look really nice. This Seiki panel though is 40 inches and it is fairly good in the color department. Uh, there's profiles for and it. It's to 4K. Get it and it's 4k. So for me, that size means that I can still have my full preview window, and they actually kind of are advertising this towards video editors, video showing editors, yeah. an editing screen here that looks pretty nice. But this guy is way more expensive than what you're getting out of uh, this $349 4K panel. Uh, looks like even warehouse deals, which I just warned you against, are $774, <laughs> uh, $999, so $1,000 pretty much to get in the door if you want to get this guy. Uh, it looks pretty sexy that's kind of what i've been wanting to upgrade to but i just don't have enough space right now i'm trying to figure out how to arrange this room my building they're just starting to pour concrete so i won't have another 2,000 square feet added to the place until probably the end of the Mm -hmm. summer so until that time i'm stuck in this really tiny office and uh (laughs) Well, while we're talking about workflows, uh, you've got in the show notes here, uh, palette interfaces. Is this, um, this looks like a bunch of digital uh, knobs and switches and faders that you plug into your laptop via USB uh, for Lightroom, DJing, I guess, and editing. Uh, is this something that you would be interested in like trying out and using? Yeah. Okay. So Devin just stole my transition and totally rolled on to the next thing here. Uh, yeah. The the palette interface, uh, if you haven't seen this yet, I've got it showing right now on the screen for the listeners. It's magnetically coupled dials, switches, and buttons with a single uh, LED unit that is like the head unit to control everything. And by magnetically clicking these together, you can set up the interface for whatever you want and you can set the controls to do whatever you want. There's a simple programming uh, system for it. So you can assign a fader, a button, or a knob to any uh, command line or button on your keyboard and they've already got presets for premiere lightroom after effects and a few other adobe products that we all use and love uh this thing is what 299 devin uh yeah there are some basic kits which when i say basic they still include about five or six functioning control surfaces uh for about 299 300 obviously there's lots of packages up and down Uh, depending on how big you want to go or how small you want to go. And then you can individually purchase a lot of these add-ons for uh, 30 to 50 bucks. It looks like depending on uh, which controller you want to use. It's, it's definitely fascinating. It's one of those things that um, it's not just got USB controlled switches. It looks really slick. Everything snaps together, uh, which for me professionally, I wish that there'd maybe be like a solid option because sometimes I need to pick like my keyboard up off of my computer or I got to pick something else up. Um, but I understand what they're trying to do here is make it really slick to reconfigure for whatever you need. And I appreciate that. And I also like the fact that um, uh, it seems really reasonably priced. This is one of those things that I expect like five switches cost a thousand bucks because that's normally kind of the like boutique. This is like kind of super high end, really fancy stuff. The only downside besides I want a way to permanently connect them uh, would be that they don't put an easy place for labeling. Maybe it's just me, but like if I walk away for a few days from labeling and come back and I've like recently reconfigured, I'd be like, well, wait, what does all these knobs do? And I'd have to go look them up and stuff. It'd be nice to have labels, but they do. It looks like they do have color feedback. So there's a ring around every control surface and it'll actually, I guess, flash different colors. It'll, I don't know, change mood lighting. (laughs) I'm not sure what the color feedback is for, but I imagine it's programmable for uh, your knobs or whatever you're doing. Now, while we're looking at devices like this, uh, Do you remember, man, I can't remember what the name of it was. It was a shuttle device that was basically an app for your iPad or your Android tablet that would work with Premiere and give you full shuttle controls of Premiere. It was a Kickstarter unit about two years ago. I've even met the uh, guy that wrote the app for it and worked on it uh, several times. Really nice guy. Uh, But I can't remember what the heck it's called. I want to say it was like uh, Shuttle or Shuffle or something like that. Concord Designs? 
No, that doesn't sound right. No. Uh, oh, well. Because Contour's designer has been doing shuttle controls for a long time uh, for Mac uh, OS X and Windows for people who do Premiere or uh, DJing and stuff like that. Okay, it looks like it's called Control Plus. Here we go. Let me share this so everybody can see it. Control Plus, uh, this is basically a fully integrated uh, control unit for Premiere Pro as well as After Effects. Gives you your shuttle features here. You can kind of scroll through some of the images, and uh, you can see, like, basically you have everything you need to cut, shuffle, play, stop, edit, you know, trim, and all that stuff. And then there's different ways to customize the interface. And then they have smaller versions for your cell phone. It works via Wi-Fi on your home network. And I did play around with this at the booth at Adobe's uh, demo, and it was fairly on top of things. There wasn't a lot of lag or anything. And that app, I really? think, is only like 20 or 30 bucks. So another option also, and because uh, now that I'm thinking about all these, this is something that I've seen and used a few times. <laughs> and it's a little hokey. It's a little ugly. But it's basically a shortcut key menu uh, for your you know, your desktop keyboard. This one in this case is a full keyboard with all of the stuff on there. And it's all of your shortcut menus for uh, cutting, for your cursor select, you know, everything that you'd normally do in Premiere. And I have these shortcut keys for the most part memorized, so I don't need to do this. But having a keyboard like this, or even buying the stickers, I think you can buy a sticker set for like $7 and attach it to your keyboard. It will really speed up your workflow. Um, All of these things are really handy. Probably... Probably the best part, though, is just learning JKL because that works in, like, every editor. Heck, even on YouTube, you can use JKL to fast-forward, rewind, and pause in, in, inside of a oh, YouTube Oh, I never tested on YouTube. I didn't know that was, a, that was a still a thing. Yeah, along with the number keys, which will take you to the different percentages of video completion, uh, hitting J and L will, uh, will skip ahead, like, five seconds or skip back five seconds. Now, one side... Don't ask me why. One side rant here and a little bit of a complaint. Um, when I move between Audition and uh, Premiere Pro as I'm working on audio, the mouse select button is V in both of them, but the cut oh. is C in Premiere and it's R mm-hmm. in Audition. And that always throws me for yeah. a loop because I'm hitting C thinking like it'll give me my razor blade icon and it doesn't. And then I'm like, well, yeah. wait, okay. And then I have to hover over it to remember, oh, yeah, it's R to, to trim. And, you know, it's, I don't know. It's just one of those frustrating First things. Problems, I struggle with that. Like probably every other weekend I end up in audition and I struggle with that exact same problem. I know. It, <laughs> it's like, can I reassign this somehow? Like make it easier for me? I don't know. Just make it the same. I, I'm too lazy. I'm too lazy to reassign it. Plus I've got a thing about kind of learning what all the defaults is in order to um, uh, being able to pick up anyone's edit machine and start working on it. So it's one of those that I really should change though. Cause it's frustrated me enough after enough time that I should just change the damn bind and we should just change this to Devin and dj talk editing oh man <laughs> i've been doing yeah. so much editing over the last uh, uh couple of months that you know all the commands that i were you know i used to sort of have memorized but were i'd have to look them up every once in a while now they're all just like bam 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 you know no problem so it's kind of different um one other thing before we move on that i want to talk about <laughs> with this palette unit is if you're doing audio Faders are really nice, um, especially you know if you're doing a full band mix or something like that, or you have a bunch of channels audio. Maybe you're doing surround sound, or you're bringing in like uh, some musical cues along with some sound effects and multiple channels of uh, you know speech. Having faders for all those controls is really handy. And honestly, I wish I had faders here at the studio because sometimes I just want to you know I don't want to draw with a mouse. I want to hit play, I want to hit record on the fader controls, and I want to just follow the audio up and down as the timeline progresses. And that's what I used to do working on um, music projects. I had a MIDI controller that was plugged into a keyboard, and the keyboard had a bunch of like fader knobs on it. Uh, you know, something like this might be the way to go, for, especially for musicians. I was looking at the list, though, for Palette's interface um, program options, and it doesn't look like they're really addressing... Um, music per se right now it seems like they're focusing more on like lightroom and premiere and after effects mm-hmm. so i don't know where that's going to well, go that's, but to be honest i can understand that being a second thought for them because i feel like there is a lot of already midi interfaces for djing and controls and stuff like that that market's already pretty saturated not that you know it wouldn't be nice to have a product that could do both you know help out with video editing and well as audio mixing so 
I'm, I'm hoping that they're going to come out and do more with that. Uh, and one final note, like the iPad app and stuff like that is really cool stuff. And I think it's really awesome that they do that. But nine times out of 10, I really love physical controls, especially when you're talking about with faders, being able to grab exactly what you need to grab and move it without looking at it um, is huge. Uh, you would never like if you're in a live video production and you're switching cameras, you would never want to switch cameras with like a mouse and a keyboard or a touch screen because well, you're going to hover your finger above the button. And then when you, uh, you know, need to take it, you push your button down and hope that you hit the right button. It's that tactile feedback that's really important if you're like trying to do things in sync um, or just to be that assured that I did what I wanted to do, as opposed to a touch interface where buttons can move and slide around. They're really great for certain things. Uh, but I think in some situations, especially live production, uh, they definitely aren't and no one uses them live. So it's something like this, these physical buttons that I see where I go, oh, man, if I had like a row of arcade buttons and I, I hook that into the Adobe multi uh, camera mixer, I could sit there like a video switcher and just hit buttons all day for each camera shot and all that. I mean, I know I can do that with, you know, one, two, three and four or whatever and the buttons on the keyboard. But having dedicated buttons set out in front of you just makes it that much more fun. And, I know uh, a couple of editors that do multicam that actually have a separate 10 key uh, off to the side oh, yeah, and they sit there, you know, and they use that for their multicam. <laughs> and I mean, watching them go, it's, it's pretty impressive because they're just like, and they're not even, they're not looking at it or anything. They've got all the number format memorized right. and they're just banging through it, just nailing it every time. I, I love seeing that sort of thing live. It's awesome. <laughs> um, I did add to the show notes guys. So if you're looking for it, it's control plus uh, console. That was that premier app I was talking about. It also works with final cut pro. So uh, if you're trying to find that, I know I had to look it up. Uh, so hopefully that will help some of you looking for an app to control your stuff. Moving on down the line here, we've got a few other random items uh, that are in housekeeping. One is SSD hard drives. Uh, I talked a little bit about this with Mitch, but Mitch isn't much for computer stuff, so I figured I'd throw this over to you, Devin. <laughs> uh, this is a 2-terabyte SSD from Samsung. Looks like this will be coming in an 840 Evo and a Pro Series drive. Uh, the Pro Series, they're offering a 10-year warranty on these now, so... That's really impressive mm -hmm. for an SSD. Uh, price is reflecting the size of these SSDs, though. We're looking at uh, an MSRP of $1,000 for the Pro version and $800 for the Evo. Still, this is probably the first 2 terabyte consumer-grade drive out there that isn't in the you know three dollars to $4,000 range. What do you think about this guy? Uh, I'm only glad because I know that this is going to push dry, uh, prices further down. Um, other than that, I'm not, I, this isn't marketed towards me. I could see it maybe being useful for something like a black magic camera. You got to do long recordings. You don't want to swap out drives all day, uh, or you only have one drive slot and you got a lot of time of ProRes. You need to burn into one chip, whether it's a long recording or, uh, you're doing some kind of live, uh, uh, production, but, um, I'm excited to see that. I'm hoping this will drop one terabytes down and kind of force the rest of the market too to start dropping one terabytes down to match it because, I would love to put two one terabytes together, uh, which, you know, on average, these even these Samsung Evos are their one terabytes are going for 320, like yeah. you've got listed here. So 640, and you have, you know, about the space that you would have this giant drive. Uh, two things to consider is that one, when you start rating drives, while you do get an increase in performance, you also get an increase in um, the ability to lose your data. It sounds weird because like, Devin. like, yeah, well, because what's the likelihood that a drive is going to die? And it's not very likely at all. But mathematically, the more drives you add on, the more likely one of those will die. And that's why RAID technologies usually goes hand in hand uh, with producing uh, replicate data so that as odds go up that you will lose a drive, uh, you start protecting more and more of the data because eventually that'll happen. So if you're just rating two drives, it's not something to be terribly concerned about, but it is something to think about that every time you add a drive in a raid, you're increasing the likelihood of a failure. And have you planned for that? Do you have your backups done? So it's one of those that actually what I've got, I don't have it uh, ready here in the notes, but there is one company, I don't know if it's Silverstone or who, but they make those uh, CD-ROM drives that no one uses on their computers anymore, five and a quarter inch bays. Um, there's a, one company that makes a six bay SSD storage for one of those five and a quarter inch bays. Really? How so do you get six prices, SSDs into there? I mean, yeah, it, you cram it. Yep, you cram six SSDs on top of each other. It comes with a fan because goodness, it's probably going to get hot in there. Holy crap. And um, 
but you can you can fit all six in there and then in one bay um i'd be able to have my raid set up because uh chances are i don't know if i'd go to six but i know i'm definitely probably going to get four maybe 500 gigabyte drives and raid that together as a raid zero to get the increased performance as well as the storage space but me doing a raid zero means i'm backing up and i'm backing up to the cloud and to local storage and a bunch of other stuff because backups are really important especially if your raids are raid zeros so that's something to keep in mind i'm just hoping it keeps dropping these prices down because i'm right on the verge of buying that bay adapter and uh, popping in a couple ssds for uh using more raw footage on the fly now i will add a few notes to this here if we are doing raid zero with uh, ssds uh, the theoretical limit where you start saturating any raid controller is about 3.5 ssds so your maximum for getting any more speed out of a raid zero configuration with ssds is about four um two one terabyte drives uh, from samsung the a40 evo uh, that's 350 i believe uh, the uh, mm-hmm. the 960 crucial drives that we were looking at before the show they're 320 so you could really build this for probably six to five hundred dollars which is you know out of two SSDs uh, the other thing to note is that I in my personal opinion I've switched over to a lot of especially for smaller installs I switched over to laptop size 2.5 inch drives uh, because they don't generate as much heat so if I'm trying to create like a fanless system or whatever I've started mm-hmm. you can buy the one terabyte and the 1.5 terabyte drives for so cheap it's like 50 bucks to get a laptop size uh, one terabyte spinning drive and 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 a good point about that too is that you don't necessarily need to lose all that performance that you might want with an ssd i mean in your situation home theater pcs they basically boot up and then they're done with the hard drive there there isn't a whole lot they do with the hard drive unless you're storing media on there but even if you are you don't need super ssd speeds to enjoy your media quickly um but if you're in another application where you want a smaller mechanical drive, you know, those hybrids are going really cheap, too, where they throw in like 64 gig or so of SSD or 32 gig of SSD um, mixed in with a one terabyte hard drive. And that does a little bit of caching and helps to keep the system running about as fast as an SSD, but still giving you all the storage. And that's one of those things I feel like technology just glossed over because SSD started getting so cheap. They just started loading hard drives with full SSDs. Uh, but there's a lot of those out on the market that are really reasonably priced. If you want a ton of storage, you only have one slot and you want to get a little bit more performance in there too. So I think that's something a lot of people don't consider, but those drives have gotten really good at their job of caching. Uh, and I've seen them run really well, even though it may not be as fast as an SSD run really well compared to the fact that I have a terabyte of storage in now, one slot. So now we're being computer podcast here. I, I yeah, do actually have a couple <laughs> of the Seagate XT drives, which are what you're referring to that they have, uh, yeah. I believe a floating eight, uh, eight gig SSD attached to a 500 gig drive. And I was testing those out. They aren't bad. The problem you run into is that if you do anything besides booting your operating system and leaving this, the computer on for a long time, it starts to think that booting your operating system isn't the thing that's most important to you. The other things are. Yeah. And so then right. you go from getting really fast boot times to getting slower and slower boot times, depending on how long you leave your system running. And you can't control the algorithm. So you can't say, hey, this is the stuff I use all the time. I need to make sure that I have fast access to this. Uh, the better option, I think, is if you're going to go with spinning drives and an SSD, you can get something like uh especially since OZC got bought by Toshiba you can buy the the old 120 gig or 256 gig drives for somewhere in the range of like 100 bucks or less and you can attach this True. Uh, to your system with a 1 terabyte or a 2 terabyte spinning drive and then you can there's a bunch of different applications that are available that will help you set it up uh, in the same configuring basi- uh, configuration basically that Apple's using in some of their laptops where it will store most access files on your SSD and then store like backup media and stuff like that on your spinning drive so that's a configuration that you can kind of roll your own if you want to go that route uh, the other thing I wanted to note is that I actually uh, launch all of my media for my HTPC from my server. So it's even less speed access right. because, you know, that's either Wi-Fi or even if I was using Ethernet, you're you're capped out at about 100 megs read speed. So, uh, right, you know, right. and it doesn't matter because, you know, you're launching like a one gig file to watch a television show or a movie or whatever. It's not that big. Right. And those those bit rates are far beneath what normal file sharing uh, uh, local LAN file rates are at. So, 
Um, and before you run out and buy anything, though, I think we should mention that Prime Day is coming. Oh, Not yeah. that we know what that holds, but this Wednesday, Prime, if you haven't heard, Amazon is, if you're a Prime member, throwing some kind of huge sale that's supposed to blow Black Water, or Black, I'm sorry, Black Friday <laughs> out of the water. So, right, Black Water is a completely different thing. We're going to gloss over that mistake. Um, so, Prime Day, I'm hoping it's going to be a lot of stuff that people normally buy off Amazon, which is usually electronics-based stuff. But since this is the first one, I feel like no one really has any idea what's coming. It's just Amazon is making some big claims, and there's websites going to have a lot of traffic on Wednesday. But if you're out looking for hard drives or something, you might wait because you might find some good deals. I mean, like I know right now, five terabyte internal hard drives are running for about 140, 130. I'm thinking they're probably likely to have a sale if somebody's doing a big sale like this. So it may be worth waiting until Wednesday to see if you can find a better deal on some of this computer hardware. Man, fi- holy crap, they are. You just got me off guard here. Um, I was actually <laughs> transitioning a few systems from 1.5 terabyte drives to 4 terabyte drives uh, last mm-hmm. month. I didn't realize 5 had dropped down so low in price, and they're 7,200 RPM. Damn, I might uh, yeah. I might have to snag a couple of those. I'm, I'm capped up against my... Uh, my space here on the system I'm sitting in front of right now. Let me see what I've got. I've yeah, everything. Um, hold, hold <laughs> on, I can actually share this. You guys can see this mess that I live in uh, here right now. You know, every single drive, even my one terabyte SSD for my operating drive is you know they're almost like two thirds to three quarters full, and I'm just running out of space fast. So um, I might have to swing through and grab some of those that's a good idea all right enough computer talk let's move on down the line to an actual camera this is the sony uh qx1 mirrorless uh style camera i guess they're calling it mirrorless lens style camera that's the actual name of it i didn't make that up um this is similar to the (laughs) olympus air Uh, It looks to be a sensor in a can. Uh, The battery type that it's using is going to be the same battery type that we see in the A7S as well as the A7 line in general. It is an APS-C size sensor. Uh, We're going to get three frames per second for photo burst. Uh, It does shoot 1080p. It's a 20.1 megapixel sensor, and it has good ISO range up to 16,000. What do you think about this, Devin? You think this is going to beat out the Olympus Air at all, or is this even worth really considering at four ni- uh, what three ninety nine versus the Olympus Air's two ninety nine? You know what? I I know that as soon as um, uh, I'm going to see a bazillion videos side by side of these two shooting it out. Um, for me personally, I'd go after the cheaper one because, like we've discussed before when we talked about the Air, this feels more like a, a bit of a niche, like a walk-around product for me. It's not something that I'm seriously going to want to put a lot of cheddar towards. Um, did but you just say cheddar? It's Yeah, I did say cheddar, yeah. So, but the Sony, it's, um, you know, it for me, I'm like, hey, look, it's replaceable battery and stuff like that. Um there's a lot to like, but once again, it's pretty much the same comments as before. I think it's just Sony establishing that, hey, we're in this marketplace too. Uh, make sure that Olympus doesn't walk off with some really cool product uh, without us fighting for it first. So for me personally, I can't really say anything else than what we've said about the other one in the past. I think two or three times it's come up on the podcast where it's really cool attaching your phone. It's not something you'd use for a photo shoot, but it's definitely something that you could literally hold a lens in your pocket pull it out and get some cool shots, whether you're hanging out with your friends or you're walking around at a flower show or something like that. Um, and it's just, it's a camera to have fun with. And it's uh, for me, 300 is a price point where I go, okay, this is replacing my point and shoot at 400. That's a little pricey. And I hope that their, um, image quality reflects the fact that they are the pricier option. Now, I didn't realize this, but it looks like Sony has been just kicking out a ton of these. You've got the QX10, the QX100, the QX30, as well as this QX1. And all of them have different focal ranges, different types of uh, built-in lenses, uh, different megapixel ratings. Some of them are 18 megapixel. There's a couple that are smaller than that. Uh, Some of them have 10 uh, frames per second photo shooting mode, which is... That's pretty impressive. That might be handy. That is really impressive. The problem for me, though, with this guy is that 
I don't really have that much in the way of Sony glass. So no. if you already have a couple of APS-C uh, Sony bodies in your collection, say you're shooting on the A6000 or something like that, um, maybe getting one of these is conducive because it's way cheaper than a new body, and you can use your Sony lenses in that sort of uh, super tiny configuration with your cell phone. The other thing to note, though, is that while Sony kind of keeps their app proprietary, Olympus has basically opened up the uh, air to programming. Uh, people have already started uh, working with the API in order to adapt it for different things. Uh, and they've also given out all the design specs for the back mount so that people can build custom mounts and stuff. Uh, this has been out in Japan for quite a while, uh, like five or six months, and people have already started developing apps for it. So there's a lot more available and going for the Olympus Air than there is for the Sony QX1. Uh, the Air for me is really the fact that I own a ton of micro four thirds lenses and yeah. it's, you know, two ninety nine. Uh, that was an impulse buy. I mean, that's cheaper than a lens. <laughs> I just pulled the trigger on it. Um, mine's on pre-order. It'll be coming whenever it gets here at the end of this month or the beginning of next month. Um, mm-hmm. that's such a good deal and it's cheaper well, than the it's session. It's a good point too, that you brought up all the other people who are like making their own apps and stuff like that. Um, good on Olympus for that. Cause you come out with a unique product and then you let the your audience kind of decide how it should best be used and stuff like that. That's, I think that's really smart on their part um, because it is one of those that's really fascinating. It's slightly outside of a price point where I'd grab it, but it is very, you know, it's one of those where it's like, man, I'd really like to just take one out and try it out because this looks like a really fun product that kind of brings, you know, just the fun back into photography because you're not being serious. Because for some reason, I get in the mindset when I have my serious gear to then get my serious face on and be really serious when I'm taking what? photos. Really? When, yeah, yeah. Just just because there's like, I, I start going through, okay, well, let's do this with the light and everything else. Sometimes I need like a really fun point and shoot camera to kind of get me to turn off my mind and go, just have fun. Stop taking it so seriously. <laughs> and I'm kind of uh, the opposite. I actually... I'm guilty of, you know, setting it in burst mode and then just holding the trigger down a lot of times. <laughs> um, and just getting lucky. Yeah, it's well, machine. you know, you're running around with, like, kids or you're doing, like, a right. shoot where it's, you know, someone's senior picture. You get the shots that you know they're going to want. You know, the, you know, mm-hmm. backlit hair, a little bit of glow, out-of-focus background. There's a log in the shot, you know, or they're leaning against a brick mm-hmm. wall because those are the things you're supposed to do. And then after that, you know, you... You put the camera in burst mode and you hit hit down as hard as you can on everything they're doing. And then you glance through at the end of the session because, you know, data doesn't cost anything. And, oh, right. yeah, that looks really cool. Okay, let's delete these all out-of-focus shots that didn't turn out well. And <laughs> that's where the uh, Panasonic GH4 has really changed the way I work with stuff is because the burst mode is so high on the GH4 that you can just nail out tons and tons of shots. I, th- I think it's like... 13 or 14 frames per second. Whereas with like this slow, uh, Canon 60, I've got in front of me right here. You're limited to about four frames per second. It's real slow. Uh, the, uh, set, um, the Canon 7D was another one that had a really nice burst mode. It was like eight or nine frames per second. And that made it really nice for that sort of shooting style. Um, I know it's not right and it's probably not the perfect way to go, <laughs> but it's, it's so nice to be able to do that, especially if you're doing sports. I mean, I don't know how much sporting True. events you cover, but if, like, for example, I was uh, shooting at a diving competition a couple months ago and people were, you know, jumping off a diving board, well, you want to get that great shot where they're in the middle of the air or they're just splashing down, and you don't have time to really compose your shot as they're going into the water. But if you put it in burst mode, aim up at the top and just follow them all the way down, pray to God your, you know, focus system tracks properly, and you end up with some <laughs> amazing shots in the middle and the end yeah. as they're coming off the diving board and especially when you combine that with uh that monster lens that i don't have on my desk right now that uh <laughs> right. what is it 50 to 150 or something like that with the doubler i mean man it really just nails it uh i know i'm lazy so you know mock me as much <laughs> as you want he's sitting back in the stands the long telephone being like do i have to get up <laughs> it's just anyway the sony qx1 
It's a thing. It's uh, $3.99. If you're interested, it's actually uh, selling right now. You can get it shipped to your house next day via Amazon Prime. Um, the only thing to note is that the early complaints are that it's very laggy and very slow. Uh, it's not open source, so you probably won't be seeing anything but what Sony decides to give you. And you are limited to 1080p shooting on this at 30 frames per second. Uh, there is no 24p. Uh, that also is the uh, same, I believe, with the Olympus Air right now. So they're trying to limit the specs that you get out of these units for video because they don't want you to go out and buy this versus buying an actual uh, DSLR or SLR right. or Evo camera. They're uh, still trying to make sure they don't cannibalize their own sales. Yeah, and I don't think we'll see anything out of Canon like this, but it's nice to see that Sony's doing it, uh, Olympus is doing it. I'm guessing we'll probably down the line see something from Panasonic. Uh, that would be great. Maybe these will even start leaking into being able to shoot 4K in the next year or two. Uh, the whole idea of this is great. It's just they need to figure out a way to communicate with your phone faster. Uh, Wi-Fi is not the most ideal, especially if you're at like a conference or a big event or something like that. Although, I will say, uh, talking to Mitch, he has had really good luck with the Wi-Fi audio adapters from Rhodes. So, you know, maybe they're starting to come up with some better solutions for that sort of thing. Not sure. Uh, let me see. What else do we have in the show notes here, Devin? Anything else you want to cover before we roll out of here? No, I think we covered everything pretty well and in depth. <laughs> Man, we really <laughs> went off topic and rambled around a little we bit did. here. So thanks, everybody, for sticking with us. Uh, as far as the uh, editing stuff goes, I've added those links to the show notes again. So if you want to find that, also all the show notes have the parts for that mini ITX build that I'm working on. Pretty sexy system, 800 bucks, well worth checking out, especially if you're just looking for a gaming system, in fact. On that note, Devin, where can people find you? Uh, ImpulseNetworks.tv, where hopefully uh, if my client load gets any uh, lighter, I'll be able to start posting out uh, some more reviews and uh, some of my opinions on some of the products that uh, we talked about on the show. I'm going to be locked here in this room right here editing <laughs> the rest of the evening and tomorrow and the next day and the day after that because I just love being in my chair in this hot room for all that time. <laughs> uh, you can find this podcast on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and anywhere else podcasts are distributed. Be sure to swing by DSLRFilmNoob.com. You can find me on Twitter, DSLRFilmNoob. Uh, make sure you send us some questions because we love to get those from you, and we love to hear from you guys. So thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. However you ingest this thing, we'll see you next time on another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. <laughs>